Alright all you movie junkies, it is time for the SLS Cast, with your hosts Matt and Tim. And welcome one and all to episode 117 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it is the Muhammad Ali episode of the SLS Cast. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, the greatest, the one, the only, Cassius Clay Jr., who changed his name to Muhammad Ali. And you're wondering, well, what the hell does he have to do with 117? And I'll tell you, it turns out that his birthday is January 17th, 1942, or 1... 17. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, and with that little bit of boxing knowledge, I, of course, am Matt, and coming to us all the way from the hidden basement where they store all of the unsold original rice cookers that was their very first product at Sony, it is... (coughs) Tim. So, uh, what's up? How's it going? <laughs> it's going. It, it is going. Um, you know, doing the whole schoolwork thing. Um, been doing a, uh, uh, an idol competition thingy, you know. Oh, is it like the, the Houston old, Idol you know, or the... The Idol of the Heights. That's right. Yes. Doing that wonderful thing. It's where you go and you sing all the Tejano music that you've been learning in your Spanish classes. I haven't had a Spanish class in a year. Well. But thanks for keeping up with that. <laughs> well, do you know yeah. what classes I'm taking now? You aren't taking any classes. Are you taking the rice cooker put together, you know, like dismantling the rice cookers for Sony or what? I could. I mean, that is that is a part of my job at Sony. In fact, you cannot be a Sony employee until you know how to properly put together a rice cooker. Outstanding. Yes. yes. And make everybody rice afterwards. You have to math, you have to master the art of rice uh uh harvesting, cooking <laughs> and eating. You have to eat you have to pick 500 pounds of rice before you even get your job. There's a private, you know, rice field there at Sony, and you have to cook 800 pounds of rice, and then you ha- you have to eat 1,000 pounds of rice, and then you will be eligible to work at Sony Pictures. That's awesome. I, you know, I always uh, thought Mitch Hedberg had it right when he said that, uh, you know, rice is really great when you're hungry and you want 2,000 of something. Yes, yeah, the same thing with peas also. Because I mean, the one good thing about peas is that you know. You, you can you get a lot of them. I think that's what uh, Jeff Car- uh, George Carlin. I think that was one of his jokes. I like peas because you get a lot of them. <laughs> oh yeah, and clearly we are neither Mitch Hedberg nor George Carlin, so we're we're gonna stop with those jokes. Yeah, real right. Fast. So what are you drinking? Um, I know that uh, you decided to get a beverage. Oh, just just water, just water. Oh, I I definitely drank more than my monthly quota on Friday at the last competition thing. So Really? I yeah, I'm gonna hold off for at least a week. So was was <laughs> Friday like your first night? No, no, it was the uh semifinal round. They had three preliminary rounds and I went on the very first evening and then uh they had the semifinal rounds where they had taken the top 
four or five or something. I guess five because there was like fifteen singers. So, what'd you uh, sing? The, I did uh, "The Change" by Garth Brooks. Was the song that I sung? It's always country music with you. Well, I'm looking like. at doing "Mockingbird" by Rob Thomas this for the finale. How about Xanadu? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to get my Justin Timberlake on so I can do that falsetto, but, uh, you know, other than that. I'm picturing you picturing you wearing a one-piece in roller skates with a bright silver, yellow... A silver one-piece leotard. Exactly. It has to have a white uh, sweatband across the, you know, across the forehead. Exactly, yeah. And you have to, like, get a perm. You need to get hair extensions and a perm. I'm going to reach out to my good friend... Um, little Richard, and see if I can borrow one of his wigs. Can you do a, a Little Richard impersonation impersonation of of him singing Xanadu? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I cannot. Well, can you do a Little Richard impersonation? Period. Um, I, sure, sure, I can do one note. Woo! There you go. Xanadu. Maybe, maybe not. No. That was like three notes or four notes or something. I don't know. I'm not a musician, Matt. I make <laughs> rice for a living. Yeah. I honestly, I did not know that Sony's very first product ever was a rice cooker. But um, I guess I guess you should be glad that it was and that it failed. Because if it hadn't, you might not have a job today. So I like how in Asia, <laughs> you start off with the most conventional and stereotypical thing, and then like that fails, and it's like, ah, I'll go into electronics. <laughs> <laughs> well, <clears throat> I guess next week we don't have to worry about coming up with a new Sony reference, so uh, that's good, yeah. Oh yeah, because I'll be <sighs> fired. Yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> well, before we get any further, I do have some uh, news of the weird and okay, I honestly think it'll be better if uh, if you uh, take control of it. So uh, okay. let me let me oh, send it to and you. And just as something for your edification, sir. One of uh, one of my uh, work buddies, Chris, who has been listening to the show, and thank you, Chris, for listening to the show. You're our special listener. Does he need a reference? <gasps> I said the special listener's name. Uh, no, he um, he actually told me to tell you that he is super stoked that J.K. Simmons got that Oscar. Oh, cool, was, good. Yeah. So I am passing that information along. Why, All right, thank now you, let me see here. You're welcome. Okay. Oh, look, it's Dangerous Minds. Been spending most our lives living in... Probably not the right Dangerous Minds. Let's see here. Wait. I... <laughs> okay. And I think this screams stocking stuffer. <laughs> it depends on what kind of stocking you're stuffing. But here we go. From DangerousMinds.net. Uh, off the wrist, jerk off and recharge your smartphone at the same time with the wank pan. <laughs> and I like the tag. Start jacking on. <laughs> oh my god. The, the wank band creates power when moved in an up and down motion. Wearables just got a whole lot more practical. 
and personal. Pornhub, a website that probably needs no introduction, wants horny folk to, quote, save the planet, end quote, with their new wearable, the Wank Band. It's a wristband device that recharges smartphones, laptops, digital cameras, tablets, and other tech devices with motion, with the motion of masturbation. <sighs> you know, the handy shandy, the five knuckle shuffle, mother fist and her five daughters. I always went with, uh, Pamela Henderson. Um, you know, but, uh. <laughs> That's gonna be the name of your, uh, memoir. Right there. <laughs> Pamela Anderson. Pamela uh, Anderson. Well, I mean, I'm going to have to do, like, Rosie Palm and her five friends. That's, you know, what I would... Um, no, apparently, this is a real product. But I think if you're trying to recharge your laptop, like, I think that's that's actually almost like the uh, perpetual motion machine, right? Because if you're watching the porn... <laughs> You can jerk off and recharge the computer while you watch the porn and jerk off and recharge the computer. <laughs> See, I wonder so, how the testing went for this product. Like, I want to know how you know. the fuck you connect it. <laughs> That's what I want to know. I mean, all you see is a picture of the wrist device, not how it's connected. Shoot. So what if what if stuff like gets in it and you can't? jack in your your computer your laptop like do you get your money back because uh, or or is that considered a a user error i'm not really <laughs> sure or it was uh oh, what is it called like if if something happened in uh like weather or whatever damaged your home or damaged your car and you try to like claim insurance on it and they're like no you can't do that because that's a uh something about god i would usually consider it an act of god yeah an act of god yes now, uh, could that sure. easily be considered an act of God if you splooge in the jackhole? It, um... Assuming, no, of course, it's a jackhole. I, I still I think I'm still going to have to go with, um... Uh... With, um... User error on that. That's some, like... I mean, I don't know, but you might get points because who knows how hard it would actually be to get that bodily fluid into that port so who knows i don't know all i know is that we have rusty blazenhoff i found the name of the person who posted this article so good old rusty blazenhoff at dangerousminds.net we salute you sir yes and in a rapid up and down motion (laughs) (laughs) and if you meet somebody that that owns this uh this it's not even a watch i mean it's literally very specific as to what you use this device for uh, because you can't use it for anything else, which is funny. But if and if you cannot get it off, if if the person you meet they're having trouble <laughs> removing it, wait, if you can't get it off, ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. You just it's a land, it's just a minefield. I mean, that's all it is here. You know. I'll just stop Sorry. there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, then, before we get to the news, before we get to the real news, uh, got some uh, emails that uh, we like that, that I'm going to uh, talk about here. Because uh, you know me, replies in six weeks or less. I had been very, very diligent in checking the email lately. Uh, and then I checked it even all the way up until like Saturday of last week, or I'm sorry, the week before last. 
And then um, I forgot to check it when we recorded on Monday last week. So these, of course, have been sitting in here for over a week now. But like I say, like I always say on the on the Twitters, hashtag replies in six weeks or less. So uh, I guess that's probably this little segment. Here we are on the 2nd of March, but we're getting there eventually. All right, so uh, courtesy of Twitter, uh, we have two new followers. Uh, first up is... Mr. Steve Mudflap McGrew, who was actually with our podcast friends, We Are Not Here to Please You, and was interviewed by them. So if you haven't heard that, go check it out. I actually made sure to look into his comedy. Um, and this guy, I want to say, is like a thinner, um, more relevant version of Larry the Cable Guy, is I think the the best way to put this um and he's really funny though i was definitely impressed uh he is at steve mcgrew um and kind of i guess mcgrew m-c-g-r-e-w so yeah at steve mcgrew and then we also have another comedian this would be a comedian i guess we would say uh this is jesse robinette at jesse r comedian and uh she says she's actually got a little uh, blurb here for her description it says i am a mom wife stand-up comedian tattoo artist fine artist business owner and that is it otherwise i'm kind of dull and um she definitely has a very dry and wry delivery i uh, watched a little bit of her on the youtubes and so if you are definitely into dry comedy and everything then you are definitely going to be a fan of her as well so thank you to at jesse r comedian and at Steve McGrew for following us at the SLS cast. And I believe, unless there's anything else, sir, are we ready for the news? Yes, we are definitely ready for the news. Well, then, here we go, folks. It is, of course, the news! So, I am a little bit uh, light on the news because I have been using my, uh, uh, my, my, wank, bot, my wank watch, uh, you know. That's for, a, your wank bot? I guess. <laughs> what was it called? I've already forgotten what it's called. What was it called? The wank, wank band. Wank band. The wanklet? The wank. <laughs> <laughs> Wear it on your ankle when you're, you know, when it's, when it's downtime. <clears throat> How the hell are you jerking off? Doesn't matter. Um. All right, so I'm so uh, seriously though, I, I really only have two pieces of news. This so week. I, I should so. probably go first, right? No, no, it has not been 98 episodes. <sighs> Let's see here from oh no, they didn't. Dot dot com, courtesy of I, I hope I'm getting this right because this is the only link to a name that I can find is L J Tryout. <laughs> I guess that's what his name is. Uh, ONTD Original. Again. Oh, no, they didn't. ONTD. <clears throat> A Spanish actress lied about going to the Oscars, gets busted. Her career is a lie. 
Yes, ladies and gentlemen. So there's this Spaniard actress who only had a couple of gigs. Her career was going nowhere, and she kind of needed something to spice things up. <laughs> Not a wank band. Basically, she was the Spanish Hillary Duff. So she thought she could fake her assistance to the Oscars. I think that he means appearance, but, you know, uh, to the Oscars. But they discovered her Instagram pick was fake as balls. Now, this is a really bad pick. Um, you'll want to go check this out, um, if you can, again, oh no, they didn't, uh, .livejournal.com. You'll, you'll definitely want to check this out. This, this picture is really, really bad. <clears throat> so, it, it's pretty obvious here, the article goes on to say that the lighting is wrong, and there is this weird, and there, there are these weird white borders around her. It's a mess. So, this leads people to question what else she's been lying about. <laughs> and it's just beautiful. Turns out her invite to the Oscars was was Queen Lupita Nyong'o's, but it was just cropped. So she's taking other people's Instagram photos and stuff, and then cropping them and changing, you know, captions or whatever, sometimes, and then posting this stuff as her own. Um, and then... They, like, you know, attempt to be somewhat objective. So it says, now, you guys, this could be a big mix-up. Why would she lie about her going to the Oscars when she was also invited last year? Unless last year's attendance was a big, fat lie, too. And again, terrible Photoshop. She literally Photoshopped her face on top of someone else who had been there. Now, this lady's name is... uh Anna Allen, and uh, ultimately it doesn't really matter because she's already closed, she's already like deleted her Twitter account, deleted her Facebook, deleted her Instagram, but don't worry, you can go here and see all these wonderful pictures. Um, like, I could see, like, if you're browsing this, like, on mobile or something like that, and, and you're following it on your tablet or whatever, these would pass, like, except for the very first picture. Most of these would pass like a cursory glance. Like you would glance and go, oh, that's cool. And then just keep moving. But when you really look at them, they, they are terrible. Um, so now they find out that's fake. So then they go back and they start looking through her Instagram history. And she has been on The Big Bang Theory. Except that she wasn't. She photoshopped her face on top of Summer Glau's body. Um, she then said that she was on White Collar with uh matt bomber or bomer and nope no that was um some other girl just again she photoshopped herself in um she then (laughs) is also like (laughs) she's following um sophia bush on instagram or whatever and then she is literally just cropping the pictures a bit and then like copying the direct captions from this poor woman and she i mean and then it's just massive just repost just repost after repost after repost um all from sophia bush it's terrible i feel so bad so then you're like wow this is terrible what the hell and then you're so they are like well okay what has she really done and then it turns out, it says that she's mostly known for some dramas she did with Johnny Lee Miller for the BBC. Wait, nope. <laughs> These are big fat lies, too. She, again, just face photoshopped herself onto another thing. 
Um, but she was pretty smart. She created a fake. Um, she created a fake agency for herself, and then promoted herself via this fake agency. So, the the fake agency, however, which is called Green Air Agency, uh, talent and artist agency, out of L.A. Uh, had 63 followers, a broken link to a web page, and the only tweets that it ever tweeted about were Anna Allen. So, <sighs> yeah. This is Wow. Funny. Yes. Matt, I am Anna Allen, pretending to be Tim. Because they, they actually uh, did a cross-type out of Brian Williams. So it says Brian Williams with a strikeout. Anna Allen has deleted her Facebook, oh, Twitter, and man. Instagram accounts, and it's a worldwide joke. Poor Brian. Poor yeah. Brian. <laughs> so anyways, uh, yeah, so, so I thought that was really cool and wanted to share that with you. So That was interesting. Uh, yeah. And bizarre. It sounds like it'll make a nice little lifetime movie here in the next year or two. <laughs> Do you think she'll star in it or just Photoshop herself? I think she will make it person. herself. <laughs> and she'll just take clips from all of the, all these other lifetime movies and Photoshop her face onto them. Outstanding. Yes. All right. So you do like. A few of your stories, and then this way I can just put my last one in wherever you feel like stopping, and then you can just bring us home. Uh, I'll do two in a row, maybe three. Uh, The first one concerns the upcoming Blade Runner sequel. And yes, there is an upcoming Blade Runner sequel. For those of you who do not know, it is confirmed uh, from Deadline.com. Blade Runner sequel, Harrison Ford confirmed Dennis Villanueva in Talks to Direct, written by Patrick Hips, or Hypes, H-I-P-E-S. One of those. And it says this. Dennis Villanueva is in negotiations to direct the sequel to Blade Runner, with Harrison Ford previously asked, but now confirmed to be reprising his role as Rick Deckard. Ridley Scott, who directed the iconic 1982 sci-fi pick for Warner Brothers, is aboard to executive produce for Alcon Entertainment. The film is scheduled to start principal photography in summer 2016, the story takes place several decades after the conclusion of the 1982 film, which was based on the Philip K. Dick novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? End all quotes. And for those of you that do not know, Dennis Villanueva directed uh, what I thought was the great film, or a great film, very uh, atmospheric film, Prisoners, which was with Hugh Jackman and Jake Gyllenhaal and Paul Dano that came out uh, I believe it was 2013, end of 2012, beginning of 2013, around that time. Uh, I'm excited. Matt, what do you think? Is this something that you're interested in, or is it like a take it or leave it kind of thing uh, for you? I gotta be honest with you. Um, I, I don't, I, you know what, I, I'll go and see it, but I mean, I'm not really excited about it. It's been 30, 32 years, 33 years now, and I've kind of let it go. Like tears in the rain. Next stop is from Entertainment Online or E Online. And this one pertains to Hugh Jackman. Now, for a while he kept saying that he would he was planning on retiring his performance or his uh, take on uh, Wolverine, the Wolverine character. And he was going to do, I believe, X-Men Apocalypse and then one more standalone Wolverine movie. And that was it. Well, then later we found out that the standalone Wolverine movie 
is going to be featuring Patrick Stewart as well. So it's going to be like a Patrick Stewart and Wolverine buddy cop, not buddy cop, but buddy mutant movie, I guess you can call it that. Well, because of Birdman and Michael Keaton's comeback performance in Birdman, it kind of changed things up a bit for Hugh Jackman here. Again, from E! Online News, Hugh Jackman says he wants to play Wolverine until he dies. He reveals that Michael Keaton inspires him to be better. This is written by Lily Harrison, and it says this, Hugh Jackman doesn't like to hear the word no. In his interview with Cigar Aficionado, the hunky star admitted that he tries, quote, to get back by saying yes to things. I respond to what comes my way. If you ask me which plays or musicals I'd like to do, well, I know there are lots of them, but what's next? I have no idea what it is, end quote. The Chappie star also explained how he's constantly pushing himself to be better in every way possible, especially when he's about to take on his famous Wolverine role. Quote, I always want to be in better shape than I was for the last one. I don't believe in stagnation. People say they try to maintain the status quo, but I believe the natural cycle means you're either advancing and getting closer to something or you're receding. Every time I play Wolverine, I want to go further, physically and emotionally. End quote. Jackman explained how watching Michael Keaton in Birdman inspired him, saying, quote, I said to my wife, the moral is that I should never stop playing Wolverine. I've got to find a way to keep playing him until I die. I know that someday they'll recast the role with another actor. I'd be happy if the role was eventually recast. It would mean that it had become iconic. End all quotes. Uh, Matt, what do you think about that? Do you have any feedback? No, I think it's cool. I, I really think it's <clears throat> it is most notable how he was inspired by Michael Keaton of all things. But hey, whatever keeps it going, I think that I think it's pretty cool. <sighs> all right, I'm just gonna go ahead and jump in and do my last one here. Um, unfortunately, my news ends on a somber note, as we as most everyone at this point is aware. Again. We're on March 2nd here, Monday, March 2nd, 2015. Um, from com, courtesy of Virginia Heffernan, Leonard Nimoy, Spock of Star Trek, dies at 83. Leonard Nimoy, the sonorous, gaunt-faced actor who won a worshipful global following as Mr. Spock, the resolutely logical human alien first officer of the Starship Enterprise in the television and movie juggernaut Star Trek, died on Friday morning at his home in the Bel Air section of Los Angeles. He was 83. His wife, Susan Bay Nimoy, confirmed his death, saying the cause was end-stage chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Mr. Nimoy announced last year that he had the disease, attributing it to years of smoking, a habit he had given up three decades earlier. He had been hospitalized earlier in the week. Um, This is a really lengthy um, obituary. And I'm just going to kind of go over the highlights here. I think most everybody is pretty much aware of the bulk, where the bulk of his fame is from. But... um, there was more to Nimoy than just Spock. And I'm and as most of his fans are fully aware, duh. But um I think it's really telling just how much of a cultural impact the man really had. And Star Trek overall uh has had when someone like my wife 
who has only ever really seen the J.J. Abrams Star Trek movie. She hasn't even seen Into Darkness. And she was like, she comes home and she was like, oh my gosh, Leonard Nimoy died. And I'm like, you know who he is. So, um, yeah, so it's really cool. Um, And so for those people who fall into the category of those like my wife, his artistic pursuits, poetry, photography, and music, in addition to acting, ranged far beyond the United Federation of Planets. But it was Mr. Spock that Mr. Nimoy um, became a folk hero, bringing to life one of the most indelible characters of the last half century, a cerebral, unflappable, pointy-eared Vulcan with a signature salute and blessing, live long and prosper. Um, he was actually doing method acting at his own studio when he was cast in Star Trek, Um and after he was so initially, um, basically he was typecast from, from that he, he literally wrote a book uh, in 1975 called I Am Not Spock, <laughs> which he um, followed up 20 years later with I Am Spock. So eventually, you know, he did kind of come around. Um, in the first book, though, he wrote, quote, In Spock, I finally found the best of both worlds, to be widely accepted in public approval and yet be able to continue to play the insulated alien through the Vulcan culture, end quote. Um, he was also a guy, though, who did, who, who literally, he did photography. He was a singer, um, <laughs> much to the dismay of most of the listening public, although he does have a dedicated fan base for that are you talking about the ballad of bilbo baggins oh no not just that <laughs> oh no he did other stuff too it's um bilbo yeah. <laughs> bilbo baggins he was the greatest little hobbit oh no he also did all. he also did covers of if i like songs like if i had a hammer uh you're talking about a guy whose first album was called leonard nimoy presents mr spock's music from outer space but he was also uh, he also did a lot of TV work. He actually went back um, in this in in 1978. He went uh, to Antioch University and uh, got a master's degree in Spanish. So I mean, he went and did other learning things. He also direct. He was a director. He directed Star Trek Three and Star Trek Four. But he also directed Three Men and a Baby. Um, he got an Emmy for doing a TV movie in 1982 called A Woman Called Golda. And, um, again, <laughs> he also did the singing. But he was also really into uh, photography. He had tons and tons of uh, poetry books and everything that he was really into that as well. It's... This guy really did a lot of cool things, and it's just so sad when uh, you lose someone who has been such a powerhouse in pop culture for the last damn near 50 years. Um, and I think it's it's interesting. I like the way that this closes. Quote, given the choice... If I had to be someone else, I would be Spock. End quote. And that's how the article ends. So that's where I'm going to end it to. Matt, bringing the tears to the listener, the favorite listener of the SLS cast. That's right. We're bringing the feels, baby. Yeah. Get on the feels train. We're taking a feels trip. 
next on next time on All Things Considered, we'll be. <laughs> All right, well, I, I guess I'll be wrapping up the news here. And uh, a couple of these things Matt will prob- probably be commenting on. Um, I'm changing up one of the things that I brought up during the pre-show. That would be the Ewan McGregor thing. So I found uh, two articles that go together, that uh, or two things that go together, I should say. I'm not going to read the full articles. That I think would be pretty interesting that I wanted to talk about a while back ago. Um, it pertains to two well-known actors. Uh, one of them is currently super famous. Uh, that would be Will Smith. And the other actor has kind of fallen off the face of the earth. Despite doing Shrek. Doing the four Shrek movies. Eddie Murphy. Each of them admitted that one of their movies was a flop. Now, I'll start with Will Smith. What Will Smith movie do you think that he said that he was quote, broken by after this movie flopped? Um, well, it's got to be either Wild Wild West or uh, After Earth. I'm going to go with Wild Wild West. That was the first. No. Well, luckily, did. Wild Wild West, be- what, you know, he made some money by it, and he was young, but it was actually After Earth. That was, I think, one of the, the biggest flops he has ever had. Especially since it was a big summer tentpole, or supposed to be a big summer tentpole uh, movie. And I'll uh, read this little article here from the DailyBeast.com. Will Smith, I Was Broken by After Earth Flop, written by Jen Yamanatu. And it says this, after a colossal bomb packed with subliminal Scientology techniques and tabloid rumors that there's trouble in marital paradise, can Mr. July con his way back to the box office. Two years ago, Will Smith endured the worst fate known to any reigning Hollywood movie star and the biggest blow of his career, a massive stinking flop. After Earth was not just a major money loser for the man Forbes once dubbed the most bankable star in the galaxy, tanking stateside, panned by critics, and packed with alienating subliminal Scientology teachings, the $130 million budgeted sci-fire directed by M. Night Shyamalan grossed only $60 million domestically and failed to make Sun and co-star Jaden the heir apparent to the family blockbuster business, much as Papa Smith tried. End all quotes there. There's more to the article, but I'm not going to go in, into it anymore. But yes, he finally said that he was broken by it. But actually, I'll read this Will Smith quote right here. He says, quote, I was like, oh, wow, I'm still alive. I still am me, even though the movie didn't open number one. Wait, I can still get hired on another movie. All of those things in my mind and my entire Mr. July, Big Willie weekend, number one, eight in a row, all of those things got collapsed, and I realized I still was a good person, he says. But when I went into focus, I completely released the concept of goal orientation and got into the path orientation, this moment, this second, these people, this interaction. And it is a huge relief for me not care whether or not focus is number one or number ten at the box office. I've already gained everything I could have possibly hoped for by meeting the people in the creation of what we did together, end all quotes. Well, it's a good thing he didn't have the highest hopes for focus, uh, because it it hasn't, I I think it's underperforming currently. But the next one, Eddie Murphy, Matt, what do you think Eddie Murphy 
admits, like, wh- which which one of his films that he admits was his most terrible? Pluto Nash. Negatory. Really? Wow. <laughs> no, okay. telling Playboy magazine, he admitted that Beverly Hills Cop 3 was terrible. That's right, 19, the 1994 sequel to uh, Beverly Hills Cop 1 and 2, which he says it put the F in Axel F. <laughs> <laughs> In more detail, quote, the third Beverly Hills Cop was garbage. No, just stop. You just, Brett, that's just, bam. I mean, you, how do you fuck do you follow that up? How do you axle fuck follow that up? I mean, seriously. <laughs> All right. So the news is over, and now we're going to a segment that we have not done for months. Um, it is called Ultimate Letdown, a movie that we were really looking forward to that, for whatever reason... Just let us down was a huge bummer. Ultimate. Let down. So, uh, do you want to start or do you want me to go first? Oh, you're going first. Oh, I'm going first. Okay. Uh, now, this is a movie that was so bad. Okay. And and it, I, I use the term figuratively. I'm going to say it was so figuratively bad that it actually ended a 100% streak on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> it's Cars 2 uh, from 2011 and this of course is from Pixar it is the sequel to the movie Cars and as I said yes now this movie did uh, great um, uh, great business kids still love it most people will think that it's okay but for me this is a movie I was super duper looking forward to. I have watched every single Pixar movie ever. I will continue to do so. This clearly did not change that. But I really, really felt that in terms of a sequel, this was just a terrible, terrible step in the wrong direction. Uh, I think the biggest misstep here was that there's a reason why sidekicks are sidekicks. And there is a major reason why um, the second banana, as it were... Um, doesn't usually get their own movie. Now, certain exceptions to that rule, let's take Kronk's New Groove, right? But that's direct-to-DVD or direct-to-video. And even that one does not match the... Uh, while humorous, it does not match the original vibe that Emperor's New Groove gave. The same thing happens here, only on such a more disappointing level. Um, I, I have nothing against Larry the Cable Guy, despite the fact that, you know, I, uh, Steve McGrew, I thought was, is, is funnier. Um, I, you know, and I wish him all the nothing but success with his Prilosec commercials or whatever he's doing now. But I just don't think that his character of Mater was designed to carry an entire movie. And I did not like, um, I didn't like the the guns and all that kind of stuff. And again, you you anybody who's listened to the show knows where I stand on violence and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I don't think that it was inappropriate for kids necessarily or anything like that either. 
it just it was not what the franchise was about and i think that's the biggest problem is that they were trying to take a movie franchise that was about a heart and soul uh of people and getting back to your roots and understanding who you are as a person but it revolved around racing and i think that that is what the franchise needed to be and i mean they did kind of throw in the whole worldwide cup thing but the real plot of the deal was the whole spy system thing and that's where that comes in with mater um it just everything that they did for me just seemed to take it to remove it further and further from what pixar did that was so amazing um, and I was just so let down. I was so bummed out because it's not really a bad movie so much so as that it's just so unlikable when compared to Cars. Uh, and I, and Tim did not agree with me at the time. I don't know that he does now or if he's changed or whatever. Um, and again, the movie did amazing business, but, um, it just, for me, I was just so bummed out at the end of this movie. I, I just was like, what, what the hell did they do? And so I sit back and I still say, and, and it's the only Pixar movie I don't own. Uh, I don't, I, I'll be honest with you. I don't even know if my kids have seen it only because we don't own it. So, I mean, if it's, if it's on, not, not on Netflix, I guess we're not watching it, but yeah. Now, I would not be averse to owning it, like if I had the whole box set of Pixar stuff or something, that'd be cool, but yeah, I just realized that. Cars 2 bummed me out and let me down so much, it's the only Pixar movie I don't own. Aww. Okay, so my movie is a sequel as well, and this might come as a shock to some people, maybe not, because I do know there are people that really do like this movie. It is, in fact... Steven Soderbergh's 2004 all-star flick, Ocean's 12. Yes, the sequel to 2001's Ocean's 11, which was a wonderful heist caper flick. I think it's definitely my favorite heist movie within the past 20 years, for sure. It is flawless, it is fun, it is entertaining, and you can go back and watch it. I can watch it, you know, once a month. Once a week, even. It's just that damn entertaining. So, of course, the movie did so well, they decided to make a sequel. And then later, a third movie to make up for the sequel. So, the sequel came out in 2004. It had everybody reprising the roles. And basically, the storyline was that after they stole the $165 million from the Bellagio, Terry Benedict, who was the owner of the Bellagio is upset, and so he tracks down Danny Ocean and his crew, his band of of robbers, and threatens that they will die unless they all repay him his money back. Well, in order to do so, they need to figure out, well, where are we going to, you know, get this money to pay him back? Well, let's steal it from somebody! Well, it turns out in Rome, there is a uh, an incredibly rare Fabergé egg that will, that will be displayed in a museum. And so they go there to pull off three different heists to uh to reclaim that money or to uh, get the, you know, whatever adds up to the 160 million dollar amount that they owe Terry Benedict. Now again, everybody is in this movie. 
Steve Soderbergh is directing it, written by uh, George Knopfley. It has a runtime of two hours and five minutes. On a $110 budget, it grossed $362,744,280 dollars. So it definitely made its money back, plus more. And so, of course, people were expecting, were, were excited to see this movie. You know, there was a demand for this movie. But the result was nothing like Ocean's Eleven. The caper wasn't that interesting. The movie wasn't as fun. The movie wasn't, like, it didn't have the glitz, the glamour, the intrigue, the suspense, the twist that the first movie had. This movie definitely does have a twist, but it completely ruins the heist. Because you have the big heist that's supposed to come at the end of the movie where this guy is about to get robbed. Well, instead of showing the heist and the entire time you're watching it, you're like... Oh, God, are they going to pull it off? Are they going to pull it off? And then they pull it off, and and then they encounter the bad guy the next day and say, Guess what? We stole your egg. You know, we got your money. We screwed you over, and they leave. Because it's Steven Soderbergh, he wanted to do something different. But in the movie, instead of doing your your traditional, you know, you know, you, you do the heist, and then you have the ending, you, have the, you know, you confront the bad guy, you know, you boast about stealing his shit, and then that's the end of the movie. Instead, before you even get to the heist... It flashes forward, they encounter the guy, and as they're talking to him, they show you pretty much how the heist was carried out. And like I said, it completely negates the heist itself. There's not really, there. there's no tension, you know, there's no suspense. You're not sitting at, your edge, at the edge of the seat because you know everything's going to come out just fine. And that sucks because, again, for two hours and five minutes, the movie, you know, it runs a little bit slowly and it kind of builds up until the ending. And then you're left with, oh, well, okay. And that's it. The movie is also a little bit pompous, a little bit self righteous, a word. I don't know. Like it's trying to be self aware. But it's not done in the best uh, in the best way that it could have been done. For example, Julia Roberts, they're, they're, they're going to be pulling off this other heist. Like, they're going in this museum. And they're like, oh, wait, we need a diversion. Well, instead of coming up with an awesome diversion, a, a, a cool idea, Julia Roberts is in the movie like she was in the first one. She plays Tess, Danny Ocean's ex-wife, current girlfriend. Well, it turns out they look at her and it's like, oh, Tess, you'll be our diversion. Well, Why? Because you you look just like Julia Roberts. What a cop-out. It's like, you know, Matt Damon was in the movie. Why didn't they... They could have just said, oh, wow, you look just like Matt Damon. Play yourself and let everybody think you're Matt Damon and cause a scene. Same thing with George Clooney. Same thing with this person. I mean, it's not like... You know, honestly, if you wanted that little joke to play out, it would have worked if the movie was chock full of no-name actors and Julia Roberts was the only one in that movie. And then maybe that little gag could have worked. But not with this movie. It felt like a cop-out. So, again, long running time. A slow start. Your run-of-the-mill kind of story. Cop-outs galore and the lack of... A decent heist so uh, for the audience to enjoy. And the last thing I'll mention about this film is that the script was not written for it to be an ocean, uh, a Danny Ocean heist flick. It was written to be something else. 
And then producers or the studio, Warner Brothers, got a hold of the script and they were looking at it and they thought, oh wow, we need another vehicle for the uh, for the Ocean's 12 or the o- Ocean's 11 franchise because they want it to be a franchise. Let's make this, uh, you know, let's adapt this to a Danny Ocean story. And they did and, you, and it didn't really work. It happens, you know, that scenario plays out quite a bit in Hollywood. And sometimes it does work. Other times it does not work. In this case, the movie was a box office hit, but it was a critical uh, failure. You know, a lot of people just didn't like it. So that is why I felt that Ocean's 12 was an ultimate letdown. Right on, right on. Okay, well, next week we're going to be doing a very special three squared. We are going to be covering our favorite works by Leonard Nimoy. So we might be discussing his poetry, we might be discussing photography, some of his TV stuff, um, his movies, what have you. Uh, just wanted to really kind of expand on this really cool and unique guy. So that's going to be our three squared for next week. And that will bring us now to the movie. <laughs> So, this week we had Kingsman, The Secret Service, Locke, and Under the Skin, the 2013 film, not the 1997 version. Um, where do you want to start, sir? How about Locke? Alrighty, Locke. Alright, this is a 2013 British drama film. It is in the vein of uh, Buried... In terms, in, in in terms of this is one guy in one spot for almost two hours. Mean buried, or did you say bury? Buried. Oh, okay, just making sure. So it, yeah, so it's almost two hours of one guy in one spot. In this particular instance, it is um, Tom Hardy as he is on his way to a hospital. Um, he is having to, uh, he's, he's in Birmingham and on his way to London to go to a hospital and he has to make a series of phone calls and take a series of phone calls to deal with all of the things going on while he goes to the hospital. Um, now this movie is you, it, as it gets going, you if you're if you're going in cold um you're kind of like wait well what what exactly are they setting up here so for the first 3 or 4 minutes it it's kind of you're you're kind of wondering just exactly what is happening um and it very quickly gets going from there and then probably about 10 minutes in you're going to realize he's never getting out of the car so you settle in for the ride along with him. And every single thing that happens that is driven is done through the phone. And he is using his Bluetooth. He's, pla- he's practicing safe cell, as they say. And uh, so he's going, he's running all through his Bluetooth and everything. And um, all of these, this just amazing, colorful cast of characters, secondary characters, um, 
are each one is kind of driving the story from their point of view and it's him having to handle it and you just see this wonderfully complex human who is having to deal with tragedy but at the same time with hope while grappling with loss while trying to save his future and salvage his past and control his own issues and there's two distinct people in the car and it is just amazing to watch these two distinct people vie for control of Ivan Locke Tom Hardy just owned this fucking movie I mean, they just, just flat out owned it. Now, the only problem with this movie is that it's meant to happen in real time. Um, and yet, they allude to things that take longer than the film itself is occurring. And so... By doing that, it's kind of losing, it's kind of creating a break in the story and in the feels, as it were. Remember, we can go on a field trip here. Um, that I felt could have been better served either by additional interplay somewhere or by literally just having the drive itself be shorter. Um, at the end of the day, for me, that really only costs the movie half a star. Um, and that half a star just brings it from five to four and a half. Outstanding movie. Definitely, if you get a chance, watch this movie. Wow. Uh, so, okay, a couple interesting things about this movie. This film was shot every night over the course of a week. Uh, and the callers, you know, the, the supporting actors, the people that call in throughout the movie, I think there were maybe a total of one, two, his two sons, his wife, boss, the guy who he's mentoring. Yeah, there's 11 people. Oh, is it, was it 11 people? Oh, wow, it's that's a lot more people. than what I remember. All, right, uh, all that stuff was actually recorded live. Uh, what I mean by that is that they had a hotel, or uh, all these actors were in a hotel uh, conference room, and they were speaking into microphones, and they the director uh, gave them props, like, you know, cell phones and handphones and cabinets, like whenever their characters were going to a cabinet or drawer to look through stuff. They had all that ready and available so that whenever their character had to do something, they were they could actually act it out so it felt more authentic. And, you know, like I said, everything, you know, it was performed live as Locke was talking to these characters, to these people, they were actually responding to him. It was all pumped into the car. So Tom Hardy was actually acting with somebody. He wasn't like just monologuing to himself or to the camera. They were feeding off each other. And I thought that was great. I think that was my favorite part of the movie is the secondary character's performance. Because, I man, stuff like that, like people calling in, callers are really difficult to get right in in a, in a in just in any movie in general i mean usually you, you know it's you have to bring in great actors to do that or really great actors can really pull that stuff off 
But in here you have Olivia Coleman, isn't it? She's a fantastic British actress. And you have, I forget his name, but he plays uh, Moriarty in uh, the Sherlock TV series with um, Benjamin Cumberbatch, or Benedict Cumberbatch, not Benjamin. I always call him Benjamin Cumberbatch. Uh, so, I mean, that aspect of the movie I really liked. What I didn't like about it was uh, quite a bit, uh, you know, during the first half of the movie. Um, at times I felt like I was watching a car commercial, like a really stylized car commercial, kind of like the Matthew McConaughey Lincoln commercials where, you know, you see the shots of the, the interior of the car, the steering wheel, the BMW, well, you know, Matthew McConaughey drives a Lincoln, apparently, but you see the BMW emblem and you see, you know, you pan over and you look at the, the 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 rain and the cars driving by, but everything is a little bit distorted. So all you see really is the lights, and you know you hear the the ringtones a lot throughout the movie. And I understand like what they were trying to do is that they were trying to create the sense of loneliness. Like whenever you're driving a car for a long period of time, you're lonely. So what do you do when you're alone in the car? Sometimes you sing. Sometimes you talk to yourself. You do all these. Uh, different things that you wouldn't necessarily do if you were not by yourself. And so all that stuff was very interesting. But again, like with those certain shots felt a little unnecessary because I think, you know, it could have been filler um, just to maybe add to the, the loneliness of the movie, for example. But another aspect of the movie that kind of bothered me was Tom Hardy's performance. I felt that he was playing a character more so than actually becoming the character. It could have been the accent. You know, he was going for the Welch accent. Um, I was reading interviews with him and watching a lot of interviews with him, and they were, he was talking about how he was trying to come up with, uh, with with this character because he's a leader, the foreman, and he wanted to create a character that, you know, he had to have a way with words, which I clearly don't. But his his voice had to be gentle. It had to be soft. So he thought, oh, a Welch accent. All right, well, we got the Welsh accent, but it just felt like him playing a character than him actually becoming the character. I, I don't, I don't know, but it, it just kind of, you know, bothered me a little bit. And there's really only so much you can do with this type of story. So I totally get that. And I totally get that it was an experimental film. And for what it is, it is definitely, uh, interesting. I didn't completely enjoy it, but I do give it 3.5 out of five stars. It is not a bad movie. I do recommend it, especially if you are a, a Tom Hardy fan, it's just, it, it is definitely more so on the experimental filmmaking side of things. So 3.5 out of 5. Right on, right on. Okay, where do you want to go from here, sir? How about Kingsman, The Secret Service? All right. Kingsman, Secret Service, 2014 spy action comedy film. This is directed by Matthew Vaughn. It's based on the comic book The Secret Service. And stars Colin Firth, Samuel L. Jackson, uh, Mark Strong. Uh, it's got appearances by Michael Caine and even good old Mark Hamill. Yes, that was surprising to see. Won't lie. Um, all right. So I was definitely not really looking forward to this movie. Um, it didn't, it honestly did not look very good. And as soon as the very first 
retarded CGI explosion occurs that causes these like rocks to tumble and they're just terribly, terribly obviously animated that turn into the letters that form the words that introduce the movie. I was like, well, <laughs> I guess we know how this movie's going to go. Um, it's, Starts in 1997, but it's playing a song from, like, 1985 on a cassette player thing. Um, And it just really doesn't get any better from there. All right. So you have these... You have this, this, this organization. It's called Kingsman. And they are an independent spy agency. They, they don't answer to the Queen. They don't answer to the U.S. They're not part of MI6 or anything like that. Um, and there's this new recruit who ends up giving his life right at the beginning of the movie and saving all the other agents in the room. Um... This agent happened to have a son who, of course, is left behind with mom. And Colin Firth is one of the guys who was saved and is like, look, you know, if you ever need anything here. And so, of course, kid grows up to be a hoodlum and ends up having to contact Colin Firth. And now we have our story of trying to redeem him and, you know, whatever. In between all this, we also have a bad guy, played by Samuel L. Jackson, with a lisp that he only has about 70% of the time. So he goes... I understand that you know he's trying to not just be the general bad guy, and perhaps maybe... The bad guy in one of the in, in the comic series or one of the main bad guys also had a lisp. I don't know. And they're trying to be true to the comic. I, I don't know. I don't care. Samuel L. Jackson does not need to play a character with a lisp. Uh, his persona has basically expanded to the point where he, unfortunately, is kind of typecast in a specific style of role. And the only way he can break from that specific style of role is to play characters that are completely outside the scope of that specific type of role. And the specific type of role is, of course, the badass. Now, here he's... He's got this henchman, henchwoman chick that I guess is his girlfriend or something, and she's supposed to be like this evil, stabby McStab version of Shell from the Portal series. And... Yet they're trying to not, they're trying to take all of these like James Bond spy over the top conventions uh, and kind of parody them, parody them in a way, but at the same time show how even when there's ridiculousness, you can still have a serious and imminent threat occur. Um, and so they show this by, in, by becoming self-aware every once in a while. And when they become self-aware, they ruin, instead of having a good juxtaposition, they ruin the illusion that the movie is is setting. You should just be ridiculous for being ridiculous, for for the sake of ridiculousness, if that's what you're going to do. I love that. Thank you for saying that. 
no problem. <laughs> um, you know, don't don't sit there and and ruin that by then coming in and trying to trying to be more intelligent than you than you really are. Um, I, I just it, it, so it creates a movie that is literally all over the place. Um, and the movie is actually rated R, but it's rated R for language, not for violence or anything. And I think that in this particular instance, I think the violence would have actually been helpful. Um, because you now have, it's kind of like having your, uh, your bread and your butter, your meat and your potatoes. Um, it just seemed very weird to have PG-13 level violence with totally r-rated language up to and including offers of anal sex i mean what 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 seriously okay um and you know what and and i think my overriding complaint really and truly i think i could have lived with all of the flaws that i've talked about up to this point if they had just done some practical fucking special effects just one like literally i think just one probably would have been okay there is nothing but cgi and it's the shittiest it's like i don't know if one of the companies that went under last year like the like the company that did the life of pi um i don't know if they did this and then just they just didn't decide to wrap up and go send their footage to somebody else to finish this is like the worst fucking special effects I have seen, and I literally, I cannot remember how long. It's terrible. And, like, the beginning of the movie, when Colin Firth goes to see the boy, they're, like, trying to recreate the watch scene from Pulp Fiction. Um, and that, that, it's just... But with all of that, with all of that, there's still fun to be had in this film. Um, there's some really crazy action um it's not all that great but um it's it's very it's it's very frenetic um and you you definitely get the idea that it's kind of homage to comic books and stuff so and i think that a lot of people who don't expect much out of their movies and are just going for a popcorn flick will probably enjoy it. Um, and people who just want to sit back and turn the brain off are gonna are gonna have it. But where certain movies that for me now, and I know that Tim and I disagree on this particular franchise, um, but like with the Expendables, uh, or perhaps with Commando from the '80s, or you know Predator and what have you. Um, where you can, where, where they have redeemable factors or they have certain things that just, you know, really resonate or are good with pop culture and good popcorn action and stuff like that. Um, this movie doesn't have that if, if you're looking for more, um, and it's just kind of sad. So at the end of the day, if you're the kind of person who's just going to turn off your brain and sit back and enjoy, you're probably going to like this movie. If you're someone who has even the slightest critical thinking, even when watching a fun movie, you're not going to enjoy it as much. And neither did I. So for me, this movie comes in right at two and a half. It's really just okay. It has got a ton of flaws, 
but there's but there is still some fun to be had. I don't know what else to say. I think I've killed it. Go ahead, Tim. Well, I have stuff to add on because I <laughs> I, I agree uh, with though though I enjoyed the movie more so uh, and gave it a better rating. I uh, there this movie has a ton of faults. Like what Matt said, there's a lot of bad CGI uh, to it. And it just kind of keeps getting worse and worse. And I'm okay with uh, these action movies having bad CGI if they're fun. Uh, I talk about this a lot when I talk about fun, over-the-top, goofy action movies, but Shoot 'em Up. Shoot 'em Up doesn't have the best blue screen or green screen effects or CGI effects, but it worked for the movie because the movie was ridiculous. It was funny. It was goofy, and it was fun, and the, and the, and the goofy action worked for it. And I think this movie, if they were wanting to go down that route, should have played with that more. Or if they wanted to go with the James Bond route, which they kept comparing itself to James Bond, they should have gone with the practical effects, like what Matt was saying. And that leads me into uh, my main complaints here. The movie makes it a point to be obvious about setting itself aside from Bond. They'll make little references to James Bond saying, so this is the point if we were in a James Bond movie when this and this will happen. Oh, no, but luckily we're not in a James Bond movie, so we're going to do this and this and this. So they keep saying they do that a lot throughout the movie, especially Sam Jack's character, which is a major fault. And it doesn't commit to either side of the spectrum, doesn't commit itself to being a take on a a self-aware James Bond movie kind of take or spy movie take, early 60s spy movie take, or doesn't commit to the idea of, well, you know, James Bond is for wussies, we're doing our own thing, and goes on from there. Now what they should have done, they should have done a James Bond spoof, or their idea of dissing the idea of it being a James Bond-inspired type of movie at the very beginning. And then it could have like started off with a goofy, over-the-top, blowing up at the side of the building and it turning into the, you know, the, the opening titles or whatever. Which, I actually like the opening of the movie. When it first started, I saw the crappy... I mean, it wasn't... I didn't think it was too crappy. I thought it worked for what I was expecting. But then if I saw the opening at the end of the movie, it would not have had been that entertaining. I mean, I thought it was fun, you know, to begin with, but probably not so much if I saw it at the end. Now, like... So Matthew Vaughn directed this film. He also did Kick-Ass... With all these movies, there are loads of blood and gore and violence, and you see a ton of kill shots. In this movie, you see a lot of kill shots. In fact, the movie, not only is it radar for the language, which there really isn't too much language, I thought, as much as there are. I mean, I actually think there's a lot of violence in this film, especially in the church scene when Colin Firth is going ape shit on people. But the violence in all of his movies feels like like it becomes a gimmick in a way. Like, oh, well, I think my audience is really going to get a rise out of seeing an axe go through somebody's skull, so we're just going to show that multiple times throughout this fight scene. Yet, the movie is so focused on the violence, it's so focused on the blood, it's so vo- focused on limbs being cut off, that there's really not much, uh, there's no more to it. You know, all the effort was put into that, but no setup, no execution. 
it's kind of like you sit down like, oh, you know, and somebody at the at the writer's table or at the thinking lab or whatever, they're like, oh, this will be cool if we do this. Oh, it'll be cool if this guy's arm falls off. Or this will be cool. Well, there's there, there has to be a setup. There has to be an execution. And there has to be a vision for it to actually pull off, especially with that, with the, with the church scene with Colin Firth. You know, the long drawn out scene where he's kicking ass. You know, the scope is so limited that, like, Technically, also, the scope is so limited. The the screen, the framing is so close, you don't really get to see everything else. Not only because it's not Colin Firth doing all of his stunts, but there's there are loads of CGI, bad CGI as well, so it seemed like they didn't want people to really catch on to it. So, you have all of that stuff tacked on to it. Matthew Vaughn also directed X-Men First Class. This movie felt like I was watching a remake of X-Men First Class without Marvel, without it being X-Men, and without it being as good as well. And that took me out of the movie so many times, because with X-Men First Class, you have people training to become a hero, to stop crime. You know, these people have to prove themselves. They have... Uh, I mean, and the training happens in a mansion as well, and there's also a shot where the the Kingsman jet comes out of this secret hatch uh, out, out in the front lawn in front of this mansion. Just like in X-Men First Class, I'm pretty sure it was the exact same shot. <laughs> the exact same setup. I mean, it's obviously a different uh, mansion and stuff, and in a different aircraft. But still, it, it all looked and felt relatively the same. Um, talked about the blood, talked about all that. Uh, lastly, I thought Colin Firth was... I, I thought he was really good. I wanted to see him, uh, see more of him. Um, I don't like what they ended up doing with this character. Taron Edgerton, I thought he was really good as well. Uh, based off the trailers, you think he's just going to be a vulgar asshole. He's actually pretty good in it. You know, he fits the character, you know, pretty well. Um, and to me, that's what kind of saves the movie. You have Colin Firth, uh, Mark Strong, Taron Edgerton, and that's what adds to the fun of the movie and some of the action does work some of the some of the jokes they do work uh though the movie really isn't as funny as it should be and lastly i will say this in sam jack's defense or not in sam jack's defense but matthew vaughn's defense it was samuel l jackson who came up with the idea of his character having the lisp though matthew vaughn probably should have stopped it right when he heard about the idea but if are you gonna be the one that censors samuel l jackson I wouldn't want to, or you might get shot. Who knows? <laughs> so I give this one. Um, I'll. Pr- I think I'll give this one three point five out of five. Again, I enjoyed it, but there are just loads and loads and loads of problems with this movie. But despite it, there is still fun to be had. So I guess that is going to bring us to Under the Skin, 2013 film directed by Jonathan Glazer. Um, this is a loose adaptation of a novel by the same name, and it stars Scarlett Johansson as an alien in search of, um, well, men, I guess, and, uh, uh, that that's about it. I was uh, doing some live tweeting while I was uh, watching this movie, and I came to the conclusion that for me, and for me, just just for me, and about um, <clears throat> two or three thousand other people on Amazon who reviewed this movie, 
This movie is kind of like species and melancholy mixed together. This is definitely designed to be a cerebral, dark experience that is um, that that is that is almost kind of like high art and high fashion uh, in concept to to make you think and to make you look into it and to to really give you an uh, an I you know to to really help you transfix your experience and transcend the movie experience into something else as you partake in this film. For example, when they're dealing with the music, they actually wanted to evoke questions that these, this is what informed the music making things like, what does it sound like to be on fire? Uh, Imagine when you tell somebody a joke and it's not very good and their reactions a bit, uh, stilted these these are actually um ideas that went into the making of the music uh to give you an idea the the concept of cinematography especially at the very beginning the oh dear god the very beginning um is such that it's it is literally trying to tell its own story and i think in certain ways there's things that are open to interpretation but basically, you have a woman who's an alien uh, in a, another woman's body who then pursues men f- to what true end is, is, I guess, left to your imagination. But uh, it is for their skin, at the very least, that, that we think, I, I think. Me, personally, I think. Um, and yet, this alien kind of begins to... It kind of begins to hit the human experience as a whole. Now, for me, much like Melancholia, I hate this movie. But, much like Melancholia, there's some great, great nudity, if you're willing to stick around for it. Aha. Um, oh, God. And <laughs> the payoff of the nudity happens <sighs> right away in this movie. And then you still get more later, so it's outstanding. Um Unlike, unlike Melancholia, um, this movie actually does have a pulse. Uh, I know Tim will definitely probably expound on the pacing and things later, so, you know, get all that. Um, and it's not truly as bad as Melancholia, but I do not like this movie at all, um... There, there is one really interesting thing, though. Uh, in the literally the halfway point of the movie, where you are kind of seeing where the shift begins, there is a uh, man who actually has neurofibromatosis, and the director went out of his way to make sure to find someone who really had a true facial disfigurement. Uh, so there is no prosthetics involved. And so you're actually getting to see um, kind of like it, it's interesting, kind of like predatory behaviors, kind of, you know, uh, stuff. And they also use hidden cameras, which I thought was cool. They, they did things that were cool. I'm not going to lie. As much as I did not like this movie, there were things that they did that were pretty cool. Um, but it just was not enough to save this film. It is too out there. It's too high art. Um without any 
without any resolution to the concept. At least even Melancholia had a resolution to the concept. This does not. And it it really just leaves you, for the most part, I mean, literally four out of five people are going, what? So, uh, critically, though, it's got an 86 on Rotten Tomatoes. Critically here, 1.5. That's it. Go ahead, Tim. What do you got? Wow. Yeah, we could be drastically different on on this movie. I thought it was beautiful. Uh, I thought it was thought provoking, uh, and I thought that this was how a uh, how a really good indie movie slash experiment film should be. Um, again, it's thought provoking. It's beautiful to look at, and it is a really cool. I thought film experience, and it makes sense. I mean, you understand. I mean, though the beginning of the movie is a little—I uh, don't want to say incoherent—but you're, you're you don't know what's going on because you're seeing these really uh, cool visuals, and it, it's very uh, subtly hinted what is actually going on. You hear her pronouncing words, and then you see her with the skin and the person she's taking the clothes from that's on the ground. So you know that. Uh, that something isn't right, and really, it isn't until the end of the movie where you realize, oh wait, now you understand the beginning of it. It's sh- it's showing her in a way, in its own artistic experimental way, how this alien is becoming this woman, and taking over her role, you know, taking over her body or whatever, is going on. And with that, this movie felt right because it wasn't totally set up. What I mean was that sometimes indie films, they, they they have like an agenda. You know, they have a mission. Sometimes it feels like they're they're on a mission to confuse its audience into thinking that they're watching an amazing movie. There was a lot of thought obviously put into this film. Everything from the direction, everything from uh, the story that they wanted to tell, to the characterization, to the setup of a shot to uh, the look of the film, everything was precise and well done, minus a couple things, which I'll get to in a second. But most importantly, it was the pacing, which was men- which was mentioned a little while ago. Unlike other indie movies pertaining to something like this, where there isn't a whole lot of dialogue, it keeps moving forward. It's telling a story. It knows where it's going. It's, it's not going to dilly-dally along. To me, it wasn't a lengthy runtime because the movie didn't feel overlong at all. I think it was an hour and 49 minutes or something like that. But again, you, you have the great pacing. I mean, it is definitely a, a sci-fi movie. It didn't feel like anything less than that. It didn't feel like, oh, this is uh, like that one film we watched, Bellflower for example, where it was trying to make you feel it was like this post-apocalyptic type of type of movie, like it was leading up to the apocalypse or whatever. And really it wasn't. You know, it, everything was forced. But this movie wasn't anything like that. Like, like that. It was a well-made film all around. When, another thing I, that I thought was really cool about the movie was that it felt alien. Because this is from Scarlett Johansson's character's point of view she's trying to find these uh these men these men that uh, i guess are horn dogs you know that don't have any spouses they don't have any i guess a productive life uh, other than going to clubs and whatnot bringing them home or bringing them to her spacecraft or wherever she is and 
basically sending these people back to her home planet or or for an experiment or doing whatever or you know doing whatever with them which the movie doesn't really go into detail about but to me it really didn't matter because it was about the experience of the movie it was about the artistry it was about the look of it it was about what was going on because honestly what was actually happening to those guys uh, beyond what you see really doesn't matter you already know that well nothing is gonna you know you're not gonna see them again obviously but also with all of that the movie brought me into its world its alien world and i thoroughly enjoy it. i mean not only the look of the movie but the music as well uh, the movie is kind of sporadic um, not like most indie films. I mean, you definitely hear more of it throughout the film than any than other uh, really super indie movies. But again, this real this doesn't feel like a really super indie movie. It feels like a really neat, like low budget Hollywood film, though it is not. With a well known lead actress who I thought pulled off the character really well. I mean, the, I mean, the movie would have sucked if it wasn't. For her performance. But if you got somebody that wasn't right, if you got any of the supporting characters that were not right, other than the ones that, you know, they that they kind of set up with hidden cameras and stuff, the movie would have flopped. It wouldn't work, you know, with the various aspects that I mentioned worked perfectly. And so therefore I thought the movie was really good and it and it, and it worked and it worked. My only complaint is the beginning of the film. It's a little slow. And it's slightly incoherent. Um, not just the opening where she's becoming herself or you're introduced to the character. But as she's driving around the town looking for looking for guys, you just really don't know where the movie is going to go from there. And that can be a good thing, but that's kind of happening for a good you know 20 plus minutes. And you're kind of left a little confused until the next thing happens. You realize, oh, okay, good. Well, the movie's moving forward. And it does. Also... There's a part of the movie where she has a change of heart, and I really wanted to see more of that change. Like, there, it needed to be a little bit more obvious. I mean, it literally happens, like, in 20 seconds or maybe 30 seconds she has that change. And then she becomes a totally different person. And so, to me, that kind of tacked off just a little bit. Not a whole lot, but just a little bit from my rating. Uh, so with all that, I thought it was a very interesting, well-done movie. I give this one 4.5 out of 5. I highly recommend it. Hmm. Let me ask you one question, then. If I may. No. No, I'm kidding. Go ahead. All right. So for a movie that you say works and made sense, okay, please then explain to me the result of the sex scene in the in in the final act of the film because this is an alien who clearly understands the dogma of su seduction and the point oh oh in that it. guy's house where she gets up and and has to inspect her vag ah yeah that i mean that's the kind of thing for me that is like completely like anytime the movie is making any stride it just completely undoes itself so she's an alien doesn't know anything really about intimacy you know her idea of leading men in could have been like based off what she saw on you know just kind of like the like the type of guys that she does lure in you know they're they're just going off of her looks her breasts right, what she I mean, wears they make a point of showing erections 
twice. I mean, a a literal point <laughs> showing erections. Well, sure, but I'm. But twice. doesn't mean that she. So you can't. It absolutely would have to. I mean, no, I don't think so. That, because well, I, then I like, guess y'all can see it and to find out for yourself. Because she's luring the men, and nothing doesn't happen. Like there, no, no intercourse is going on. She's not rubbing up on them. She's not kissing with them. There's no actual intimacy that is right. had. It's I all get based. That. I mean, I'm not, I'm not disputing that, and I'm trying to keep it as generic as possible f- because clearly we want to limit spoilers for anyone who wants to enjoy the movie or watch it or whatever. But. I, I just I, I'm sorry, I have to disagree. You can't have that level of understanding of the species and what you're trying to do for whatever reason you're trying to do it, and then have that reaction later on. I just I don't Well, I mean if you went to I an alien planet and you were gonna do what she was doing and it's like, mm-hmm. well you you don't really I mean you don't understand. I mean, who? I mean, you, you don't know that she doesn't understand. I mean, she's just taking the bodies and doing whatever with, you know, the skin or sending the bodies somewhere or you know doing whatever with the bodies. You don't know the love to the level of what she knows or what what that species that you know what they know of the human beings. Because if they don't know that humanity is or can be a compassionate, uh, loving, caring uh, species, then maybe she doesn't really know about. You know, human female anatomy. Okay, so <laughs> that's gonna bring <laughs> you us just to don't the end. like to be wrong. <laughs> uh, all right, so next week the movies are Enemy, An American Crime, and Horns. Uh, the first two are available on Amazon Prime, and Horns is available on Netflix. So. There you go. All right. And that is going to bring us to the end of yet another episode and to the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on. All right. Well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we, of course, are the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can even follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at NitTwit12345. You can even... Climb aboard the Information Superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if you like. Of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So, until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Michael Keaton, I get to say this. There comes a point in your life when you realize how quickly time goes by and how quickly it has gone. Then it really speeds up exponentially. With that, I think you start to put a lot of things into context. You start to see how huge the world is and really the universe. Take care, guys. We'll talk to you next week. Maybe. Hopefully. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at 
the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.